You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Man, that was intense. I'm recording this intro after the interview, and the interview is with JT McCormick. He's the CEO of Scribe Media. They'll publish your book, but he was his dad was a, a pimp. Literally, he would drive around with his dad picking up money from prostitutes and he tells some wild and extreme stories. I'm not even making light of them. They are intense. He grew up in a lot of bad circumstances, which we get into and it was not so good, but he rose up and he describes that and he's president of a software company. Now he's the CEO of Scribe Media. You might know Scribe Media because that's the company Tucker Max started and it helps people publish their books. So we also get into publishing your own book, marketing your own book, and other ways to make money. And at the end, I pitch him some ideas for Scribe. But we start off talking about some of the, some of the probably the harshest stories I've heard on this podcast. So anyway, here's JT McCormick. Good morning, 
Morning, your feet hit the ground. You got to be excellent. Excellent. So you're in your house right now. Are things like locked down still? You know, in Texas, it it it, it things kind of I guess if you want to say heated up or or you know uh, spiked, whatever the case may be. We actually opened the office back. We so we went shelter in place early March, and then we opened everything back up June first. And then yeah. we shut it back down at the end of June. And so we, we shut it down indefinitely. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? Like uh, employees obviously are working remote, but yeah. you don't everyone's, think they'll ever. Everyone's remote and it's, it, it's worked out well for us. You know, we, we, so there's, there's a, there's a little over 50 of us in, in the tribe and 10 the tribe of scribes. Yeah. And 10 of those folks are remote anyway. So remote for us was easy to, to convert to. It wasn't a big deal. So, you know, all is well. Good. Yeah, I think the whole world is going to go. I mean, obviously, this is discussed for millions of hours in the media, but remote is is here to stay. It's never going away at this point. Yeah, it, it definitely in some way, shape or form. I know for us, we've always had a, a dynamic, uh, a combination of both, if you will. So uh, most of our, our, our tribe members come in two to three days a week. And then they work from home, uh, you know, two or three days, whichever they they So we've always had this type of setup, so it was very easy for us to convert over to it. Well, I'm I'm curious how you're managing it, but uh, uh, you know, it's interesting because a friend of mine was telling me the other day it takes 21 days, and I don't know if this is true, but he says it takes 21 days to build a habit, but yeah. 90 days to build a lifestyle. And now we've all been remote for more than 90 days, lifestyle has changed in the United States of America, in the world. You know, it, you know, it's, it's interesting, James. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a little fire out here. I've always had a problem with that. And, and I don't know if it's factual. I don't know if it's a, uh, a medic, medical fact, but I've always had a problem when someone said it takes 21 days to develop a habit, because I, I always think to myself, if you tell yourself it's going to take 21 days, then it's going to take 21 days. But but yeah. if I told you it was going to take 21 minutes, would you believe that? And so I, I got a problem right off the bat when someone tells me how long something's going to take. I, I agree with you because I'll, I'll do, okay, I'll do push-ups for 21 days in a row. Oh, I did it. it um, I built the habit. Then the tw And that means I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> so then I'll stop doing it. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I figure by myself, you know, what if I told you it was going to take 21 seconds, 21 minutes? So I, I feel it's uh, it's equivalent to this, James. When when someone says, I'm not a morning person, well, you're right, because you just told yourself you're not. So yeah. if, if you tell me it's going to take 21 days, I have this mental thing in my head now that I got to get to 21 days. I, I don't know why that is. No, I agree with you. And look, this leads right into your story. I mean... You grew up one, you know, you can, you can argue you grew up one way and transformed yourself into another way. I would disagree with that, you know, story arc in some sense, but I think that's the classic way people would describe your story. I, I would think, I don't know for sure, but so essentially, you know, you, you, you wrote the book. I've read, I've read it twice now, but I gotta, I gotta always look up the title so I don't make this wrong. I got there. How a mixed race kid overcame racism, poverty, and abuse to arrive at the American dream. 
I read this when it came out, like in 2017. And I think yeah. we were gonna have you on the podcast. What I forgot what happened. Like, why didn't I have you on my podcast then? Man, cause cause you canceled on me. <laughs> I did. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. I had a lot going on. <laughs> my life's better now. <laughs> there you go. There you go, man. Well, I'm so glad we've connected. I mean, we've we've intersected so many times, I feel, over the years. So I'm so glad you're on. Um, just a little introduction. You grew up in, you know, definitely a horrible situation. Dad was a drug dealing pimp, as you've described. Mom uh, was an orphan. She had her own struggles. You spent time in juvie. Um, there's a great scene in the book where you're embarrassed about the fact that not only did you not have an MBA, you didn't go to college uh, or you didn't have a college degree. And, and Tucker Max, our mutual friend, uh, kind of uh, shamed you a little by saying, JT, <laughs> you should own it. You should basically... Be proud of it. You're you're a truly self-made man, and that um, that kind of was a, a realization for you. And you know, but it's interesting. You know, I had Ken Lingo, the uh, founder of Home Depot, on, and he made the point that no one is self-made because right. everybody has people helping them. And uh, you know, so you you agree with that? But tell us a little about about the story. What was tell tell me a, a pimp story? <laughs> oh, oh, and I just want to say right now, you've been. CEO of companies, you know, president of companies, you're, you're CEO of Scribe Media, again, started by our mutual friend, Tucker Max. It's a great, innovative company. I've sent tons of clients your way. I've had tons of your clients on my podcast. And what you do is you basically help people tell their stories. You help people write their books. You help people market their books. It's kind of a hybrid publishing company. So I, th I think it's just a, such a great service for humans. I, I wish I had the idea. I always tell Tucker, I wish this was my idea. It's such a good idea. And, <laughs> I, and then you, Tucker quit that. as CEO and, and made you CEO, which by the way, knowing Tucker for a long time, that's almost an impossible achievement that you, <laughs> no one else is ever in history going to be able to say, I took Tucker's place as CEO. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's uh it, it was an interesting dynamic coming on, but you know, to to your point of tell you a pimp story, I'll give you a little bit of value. You, you nailed the background. You know, my dad was a pimp and a drug dealer. And, and it's sad because somewhere along the way, James, you know, our society uh, twisted the term pimp. We turned it into a positive, you know, pimp my ride, pimp my apartment. But my dad put women on a street corner. They sold their bodies and my dad took every dollar. And then Along the way, he also fathered 23 children. So oh I'm one gosh. I'm one of 23. Uh, my dad was a black man. My mother's white. Uh, she, Like you said, she was an orphan, grew, grew up in a 1950s institutional orphanage. Uh, unfortunately for her, when she got out of the orphanage, one of the first people she met was my well-dressed, fast-talking, quite a bit older father. And... Yeah, you, you nailed it, man. I, I was in juvenile three different times. I was sexually molested by one of my dad's prostitutes from the ages of six, seven, eight years old. Uh, I don't have a college degree. Hell, I only have a GED, in, in, in fact. And But, you know, I, I refused to be a, a victim. And I learned a lot from from my, my dad. You know, there, there, he was not a completely good person. And I've hesitated to share this story. I've only said it out loud twice now. So this will be the third time I'm going to say it. But you said, tell you a pimp story. As a kid, eight, nine years old, I remember going around one weekend with my dad collecting money from pro prostitutes. And this was really my first 
insight to, I guess, uh, being a business owner and thinking, how do you make the business better? So we would drive around, and my dad, he'd crack the window. It was cold outside, and he'd crack the window, and prostitutes would stick their money in the window. And some would ask, you know, hey, I've made X amount of dollars. Can I come in? And he's like, no, get back on the corner. And then we go to the next prostitute. She'd stick some money in, and he goes, hey, this is, this is light. Get your ass back out on the corner and, and, and work. You need to work it. And I remember as an eight, nine-year-old kid thinking to myself, huh, if I was nicer to the prostitutes and I let them keep 40% of the money, could I make more money in volume by having more prostitutes? And I remember putting this whole plan together in my head thinking, okay, but other pimps are going to be mad at me because I'm going to take their prostitutes. And you know, I, I created this whole dynamic of what it would be like to scale this business not knowing that one day I, I'd end up in business where uh, my my talent is is scaling companies. So it, it it happened for me way back then that I started thinking about how do you scale a business. You know, it, it's interesting because obviously I don't I I don't have any stories like that. I don't know any <laughs> any. I didn't go around with my dad, you know, uh, collecting money from prostitutes. All I have in terms of stories is I read the book Pimp by Iceberg Slim, yeah, which is a very interesting guide to being a pimp. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that was more, I think, the 20s or 30s. I, f I forget exactly when he was doing it. But he, there was sort of um, a methodology to his meanness. He didn't want anybody to, to get out of hand. He felt like he always needed to, um, you know, if he was, everything was purposeful. So if he was nice, there was a purpose, like he could, he could withdraw that that niceness, and if he was mean, there was a purpose. Yeah. And I wonder if there was a reason your dad didn't do the strategy you were thinking of. I I, I don't know. I I do remember it, it was just always chaotic. It, it was always you know one of you you said tell you a story. I got another one, and this was really traumatic. So my my dad had this red Cadillac Eldorado Brits in the 70s. You know, the, 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 the car for a black man in the 70s was a Cadillac. And so you didn't breathe on this car. It was candy apple red on the outside. The inside was candy apple red. I'm talking leather seats, the red, red carpet, all of it was red. And you did not move when you got in this car. You didn't breathe. So on one occasion, me and two of my my half brothers are in the back seat, and my dad's in the front with one of his prostitutes, and you know he's arguing, and we're we're used to it. But out of nowhere, we we had just gone to Wendy's, and so the prostitute's holding this bag of food, and out of nowhere, the prostitute takes out a burger, and she hits my dad in the side of the head with this burger, and the burger opens up and falls all over the car. Now, one would think. We're, you know, we're sitting there, oh my gosh, she just hit my dad. No, what I thought was, uh-oh, you just got stuff on the car. And so my dad, in the middle of the highway, James, puts the car in park, gets out, walks around to the passenger side, pulls her out of the car by her hair, commences to beat her in the middle of the highway, takes the bag of, of food, dumps it on her, takes her purse, dumps it on her, shuts the door, walks back around, gets in the car, puts it in drive, and drives off. But here's the damnedest thing, James. He then looks back at us and says, in the, in the calmest of voice, he goes, so where do you guys want to go eat? 
as if nothing happened. And it was, but, you know, I grew up in chaos, which was... I feel like that was like, he was giving you specifically a lesson there, not in how to treat people, but how nothing affected him. Nothing uh, affected he, And I think he knew he was communicating that. Yes, he always stayed incredibly calm. You know, I remember even when the, when the when law enforcement raided his house, and I'm talking raided the house, kicked the back door, the front door in, broke windows, and just destroyed the house. And my dad never lost his cool. I just remember my dad kept saying to the to law enforcement, "I'll be out in three hours. I'll be out in three hours." He just kept saying that very calmly, but it but it seared a memory in my head. I was eight. Uh, of watching my dad walk out in handcuffs. And I remember him making eye contact with me. And that always, that really bothered me because I, I didn't know what was going to happen to him. I didn't know, is he going to really come back in three hours? And, and it was just a sad moment to see uh, my dad walk out. And, and what was crazy, James, is what bothered me the most is watching my dad walk away in handcuffs, I was being left with the prostitute that used to sexually molest me. And so in the middle of being scared because my dad was was leaving, I was more fearful that, oh my God, is this is this prostitute going to molest me as soon as my dad leaves? And and what happened? She didn't. And and so that that was a, a good thing. I think just because there was so much disarray and the house was messed up and and just, you know, the, the whole series of events, uh, she, she never did. But, man, James, from the ages of six, seven, and eight, that woman, man, that woman was a, a monster, man. She used to, and I, I, I guess I'm free to say this on your yeah. show, um, she used to force me at ages six, seven, and eight years old, she used to force me to perform oral sex on her. And if I didn't do it right, she would slap me in the face and punch me in the head and say, do it right. And, you know, I'm six years old. What the hell does do it right mean? And so I remember right about when I got eight, you know, eight really clicked a lot of things for me. I felt like I matured a lot at eight years old. But I remember saying to myself, okay, I am never, ever going to be in a position where I don't know what to do. And I developed uh, what I call perfectionism. Everything I did from that point on, I wanted to be perfect at it. And, and unfortunately, it served me very well in my career, but it was also a detriment because we all know there's no such thing as perfect. And, and I even developed this phrase when people would say to me, well, you know, JT, there's no such thing as perfect. And I would tell people, you know, I may never touch perfection, but damn it, I'm going to get close enough that I can smell it. And it just was a very bad um it, it didn't serve, it, it served me well, but it, it caught up with me because there's just no such thing as, like I said, as perfection. And, well, let me ask you, like, did you, uh, you know, did this, you know, this situation with the prostitute, did this affect your future relationships when you grew up, like, or when you were older and you were starting to have serious relationships with, with women? Oh man, James, I, I greatly, you know, no one has ever asked me that. And I greatly appreciate you bring, bringing that up. James, full transparency, man, I could not hold a relationship to save my life. By combination of what that prostitute did to me, combination of watching my dad, combination of never seeing a, a man uh, respect or my mother or, or what would it look like to, to uh, respect or take care of a, a woman, if you will, 
I mean, I was a monster in relationships, James. I, I couldn't hold one. I was in and out of them. I just was a beast. I could not hold a relationship. What What would you feel like? Would you feel like, like just awkward if it started to get close, or like what would what would happen in your brain? You know, here, here's here's the best way I I can say it. Um, and again, I'm, I'm going to speak very open on this. Uh, about two years ago, it was uh, Christmas time, and my wife and I are sitting on the couch and we're watching a movie. And out of nowhere, she just she says to me, "This is re real personal." She she says to me, she says, um, "Hey, how come you never allow me to initiate sex?" And usually, I've got an answer for everything, or at least I believe I do. And and I said, you know, I, I I'm not sure. I don't know. Let me let me think about that for for a bit. And about a week later, I came back to her. I said, hey, I know why. And she was like, you know why what? I go, why I don't allow you to initiate sex? And I had never said it out loud. And I told her, I said, because when I was a kid and, you know, that prostitute would, would molest me, she, she always initiated it. She always forced it on me. And it took me time to sit back. There I was, 42, 44 years old, and realizing no woman I never allowed any woman to initiate sex with me. Even if a woman attempted to, I would not have sex because it just, I, I did not realize the impact of what that, that took on me as a child. And, and since discussing that with her, do you think, do you think discussion, do you think vulnerability frees you a little bit from that emotional prison? It does. It, you know, even doing the book was very therapeutic for me. Uh, you know, when, when I first met Tucker and we we talked about doing the book, I, I said to Tucker, I'm just like, hey, man, I don't care if this book ever sells a copy. Matter of fact, I only need five copies for my kids. I, I was doing that book as a legacy piece for my children. That was it. Yeah. I I did not want that book to ever be public because of the stories that, that were in there. I swore there's stories in that book that I swore were going to be in a safe wrapped in chains at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And, but when the book went public, you know, through a lot of encouragement, a lot of conversations, a lot of support, and we, we made the book public, it was very freeing, you know, for, for people. Yeah, I don't have a degree. My actual name is Javon McCormick. I'm, I'm mixed race, half white, half black. Uh, my father was a pimp. My mother was an orphan. And so it was very freeing that, you know what, this is who I am. And, and damn it, you know, like it, love it, hate it, whatever. It, it is what it is. But you know, the conversation with my wife was very therapeutic because I had never said it out loud. I had never had to think about it. I compartmentalized it, put it in the back of my head and just forgot about it. You know, and, and often the child of an abusive parent has a tendency to repeat, you know, generations repeat abuse. Sometimes it skips a generation, but like, how, how do you, how do you think about this in relationship to your kids? You know, for for me, I've always said my my dad, he he taught me a few things what to do, but more than anything, he taught me what not to do. He taught me how to not be a father. You know, my my dad didn't have much follow through. Um, matter of fact, because of my, I would say my my circumstances, my my dad a lot had had a lot to do with it. Uh, I eliminated three words from my vocabulary, James. And if if you allow me, I'll, I'll even give you the three words. So. I eliminated the words hope, wish, and luck from my vocabulary, and, and I'll dive into them. When I was a kid and I would hope my dad would come pick me up, he never showed up. 
When I would hope there was something to eat when I got home, it never produced anything. So I stopped hoping. And in fact, James, I got a friend of mine now, he's a pastor, and he goes, JT, I can't eliminate the word hope. I said it 16 times in my sermon last last, uh, Sunday. And I said, okay. I said, follow me on this. I said, do you want me to hope there's a God or do you want me to believe there's a God? Now keep in mind, James, he's a pastor. He said to me, he looks at me and he goes, damn. He said, I've never thought of it that way. I said, I don't do hope. I believe. Believe forces execution. If I believe I can have the big house, then I've got to execute to go get it. If I believe I can have the career, I've got to execute to go get it. Yeah, that's such a great point. Like hope sort of implies there's some aspect out of your control that is going to help you. And on the one hand, you could say, is that related to your perfectionism? Like you have to control everything in the path. No, you can just say, look, I can just, I can just take these actions and I know that they're the correct actions. If I want to get the house, I might not get the house, but these are the actions to take right now. Exactly. Exactly. And and the same thing with wish. I'm so passionate about wish James and eliminating it. You know, I've got four children now, ages six, five, three, and one. And so we do a lot of birthday parties in our house, obviously, but you're you're living in hell now. This is, this is the worst. (laughs) Man, it is it is complete chaos in my house. Talk about abuse. Oh, man. Um, but when we do their birthday parties and we put the cake on the table and we light the candles, we don't say make a wish. We say make a goal. There is zero wishing at the McCormick house. And I, I'm passionate about that. Wishing is just a garbage word. Oh, I wish I had the big house. I wish I had a great career. You know, you can wish all day. It's not going to produce anything. And then luck for me, again, just a horrible word. You know, people will say, oh, the lady who won the $100 million lottery, she's so lucky. No, she bought a ticket. She executed. She did something. And so I eliminated those three words. And and to your point, yeah, a a lot of that came from from my childhood because those things never produced anything for me. And yeah, they've carried over. And the, the last piece on that, James, I've always chosen to look at life in a positive manner because negativity has never produced anything. And so I don't look at things in a negative manner. I, I'm not a victim. So many people will say to me, oh, JT, you had every reason not to succeed. And I'll say to people, no, I had every reason to succeed because if I can make it through that chaos, I can damn sure make it through the rest of life. You know, I think this is, I think there's a lot of things to look at there. I mean, the word negativity is really interesting because one time I was starting a business and I was in a relationship with someone and I was nervous about the business because things weren't going so well for a while. And I was like, this could happen. And then she said, well, but what about this? And I said, well, then this could happen. And then this could happen. And she said, well, what about this? And I'm like, well, this, this, this could happen and this could happen. And, and, and she said something like, you know, if you're so negative, then it will happen. And I'm like, no, I'm just reducing risk. I'm just making sure I have taken into account all the things that could, that could, I'm not planning on these things to happen. I'm planning on these things not to happen, but I'm, but if they do happen, I have to be able to reduce risk in all my business decisions or else I'll have a bad business. So I do think, so I think negativity, a lot of people think, a lot of people take too broad a definition. You have to, you have to look at things that can go wrong in order to reduce risk and entrepreneurs and and CEOs always are reducing risk. And those are negative things that can happen. I have to say, if there's a hurricane, I better not make my house out of 
paper or whatever. I have to reduce the risk of my house being destroyed in a hurricane and, and so on. But that's not, the, and that's not the same as, as being negative. I'm not going to attract a hurricane to me. Right, right. No, and, and I agree with you. And, and it's, I love the choice of words because I, I 100%, I've got to assess the risk and I've got, you know, for, for me, matter, matter of fact, uh, the great majority of my personal net worth was made in the stock market. So I totally understand risk in, in you know, being risk adverse versus what risk are you willing to take. And but but I still see risk as factors that can take place Um they're, they're, they may be negative, but I choose to just still focus. You you nailed it on the word risk versus uh, negativity. My God, I mean, we we just live in a negative society where everyone tries to find the negative in everything, and I'm I'm busy trying to find the positive in it. Yeah, and you know this skips completely around. And I want to ask you about a couple of things you've already brought up. Plus, what, what you know, obviously, we I want to talk about what you're doing now and how you got there. But in this in this situation that we're in now, we just had. The pandemic, it's still going on. We had this economic lockdown, which has really been, you know, you can finally say this time things are different because this time really things are different. Like the economy yeah. has never uh, been forced at gunpoint to, to shut down in our society. And so we don't, re it's really unpredictable what will happen. But I mean, there's so much polarization and arguing and just fighting and somehow or other by coincidence, 50 million people on one side agree on the same 80 things and 50 million people on the other side agree right. on the other 80 <laughs> things. It's an amazing coincidence how that happened. And everyone gets sucked into the arguing. And how do you rise above that? Because you have, you have to rise above that to, to even move forward. Otherwise, everyone's just arguing on Twitter. Exactly. You know, for, for me, James, uh, I, I'm only on one social media platform. It's LinkedIn. I, I find it to be the most professional one, if you will. So I eliminate the noise and because everyone's got an opinion. You know, it, it, I'll dive even more into current society. You know, right now, obviously, race is really big in, in our country and in I tell people all the time, I said, you want to have a race discussion. Let me tell you what it's like to be half white and black people don't like you and half black and white people don't like you. And, you know, to be raised in the 70s. And, and I shock people when I say this. I, did, I said, do you realize I wasn't even legal? I wasn't even legally allowed to be born in this country until 1967 because that's when they said interracial relationships could actually happen. That's I true. Said, I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and so... When, when I look at the overall uh, um, the, the viewpoint of, of America and, and how we do things, a lot of people jump on what's hot, what's the bandwagon, what's going on right now. And, and I just choose to, I choose not to focus on what everyone else is focusing on. I'm responsible for... 50 people, our company, my wife, and four kids, and I got to make the best decisions for for all of those people that that I am responsible for and support. Outside of that, I, I'm not big on other people's opinions. I think I think that's I think that's good. I think that's that's healthy, and I think you know understanding who you really are responsible for, and they take up enough time and they take up enough energy. It's not like like everybody's out there trying to save the world or say like, oh, you know, we can't put police 
3,000 miles away or we can't take this drug or that drug. Like so many people are acting like they're the rulers of the world on, on Twitter. And yes. they all have, they all have, they must all have PhDs in chemistry and epidemiology and economics and, and they're all experts and they're anonymous also. Yes, everybody's got an opinion. Everyone's an expert. I'm still trying to figure out what makes you an expert. You know, I mean, so again, I focus on the things that I feel like back back to your word that that for the most part I can try to control because at the end of the day, none of us really ever have control. But I, I focus on the things that I can influence, have a bit of control over, and outside of that, I, I don't really get involved with other people's opinions or, or thoughts or things of that nature. And beca mainly because when some people hear my thoughts on certain aspects, they're shocked on the, the things that I have to say, especially like the, uh, uh, the, the protest that went down. When we had our company all hands, people were shocked when they asked my opinion on them. But what was your opinion? Can, can I ask you? Yeah. It, you know, we, we had an all hands and they said, you know, JT, obviously me being mixed race, uh, they said, JT, what are your thoughts on the 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 protest? And, and I said, uh, I'm frustrated. And they said, why? I go, because this is not new. I go, I'm frustrated that, uh, you know, when, when I look back, James, and, and I remember being five years old with my mom, and we got kicked out of public housing because my mom had a mixed-race son. And the manager put all of our belongings on the front lawn and, and, or the front of the building, and when we walked up, he runs out and he gets in my mom's face and he says, hey, no nigger lovers can live here. And it was the damnedest thing because black people lived in the building and white people lived in the building, but they didn't want mixed race in the building. And, you know, on another occasion, when I was nine years old, we were standing in line for our free government handout welfare. Uh, and you had to stand in line three, four hours for you to receive your food stamps. There was an older white lady that had looked down at me, and then she looked up at my mom, and she spit in my mom's face, and she called her a nigger lover. Oh and, and I remember, James, even, even at that age, I, I, it's, I still smile because I think to myself, wait a minute, you're in the same broke-ass line as we are. <laughs> what makes you any better? But it was a great lesson for me. One, it's, it's truly one of the memories I covet the most because it taught me at nine years old— everyone's not going to like me. I'm never going to be able to make everyone happy, so I'm not going to spend my life trying to make everyone happy. Black people aren't going to like me because I'm half white. White people aren't going to like me because I'm half black. And, you know, so, so I look back at when I was nine. I look at when I was 21, and I stopped going by Javon. I started going by JT. And the reason being is I could not get an appointment to save my life. You know, so you saw Javon show up uh, on the resume or the email, whatever the case may be, and I couldn't get a call back. I couldn't get an appointment or anything. I'll be damned. I switched my name to JT, and I'm, I'm, I'm overloaded with, with appointments and calendar invites. And, you know, I, so I look back to, to that, and then, you know, I'll, I'll go a little more recent here, and I told this story in the all hands. I said, shortly before I met my wife, I was dating a very prominent a uh, business owner here in Austin. And we're, I, I don't know how race never came up, but but once it did, we had a conversation. And two days later, she calls me back and she says, hey, um, we can't see each other anymore. And I said, why? She goes, my family would never accept you. And oh I'm like, God. wow. And, you know, so, and then the last one, James, uh, I'll share with you. This happened literally two years ago. 
I'm on a podcast and I'm being interviewed to be on this magazine. I'm going to be on a magazine cover with um, Leon Cooperman, the hedge fund billionaire, uh, with uh, four-star General Petraeus and the CEO of Anheuser-Busch and a few other CEOs are going to be on the cover of this magazine. So I'm being interviewed and the interviewer, the guy says, hey, what does JT stand for? And I said, Javon Thomas McCormick. And he goes, oh, sounds like you should be an athlete. And I thought, oh wow. my gosh. And, and I didn't say anything. You know, I kept going. I had been used to it. But then he goes, uh, he further goes into the interview and he says, wow, you're so articulate. <laughs> oh, my God. What did you but, say? Uh, you know, James, I'm used to it. And the yeah. fact of the matter is, I was excited to be on the magazine. So it was one of those moments that I said to myself, okay, do I blow up? put this guy in his place, or do I keep my composure and get to be on, on the magazine? I chose to keep my composure and, and be on the magazine. But it, it the reason why I told our, our, our team, our tribe, in the all hands why I'm frustrated is because this isn't new. And it really frustrates me to see that it took somebody dying on video for this outpouring uh, of people being pissed off. And, and I said to myself, the other thing that frustrates me is, are we truly ready to change? Or is it just that 41 million Americans are unemployed and we don't have anything else to do? Is it because we've been in the house for two and a half months and we're pissed off and we don't have anything else to do? Is that why we're protesting? So for me to, to see real change, I, it's going to be need to be something that's continuous uh, be, before I believe in, in this movement. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's funny. I asked Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, who's African American. He's been he spent twenty two years on the police force as well. I asked him, like, why is this happening again? Like, happened in nineteen ninety two. It happened in Occupy Wall Street to some extent. It happened in the sixties. Like, are things not getting better? And he pointed out to me correctly that things are getting better. He and and you know it's just there is occasional these outbursts of frustration. It doesn't get better fast enough sometimes. And you know, and I think partly it's it's also you know the the economic lockdown when people are hungry and are not out of a job for four months and they can't get their job back. You know, things are going to happen. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. 
and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. You know, I'm, I'm curious, when you were a kid, you were probably really scared a lot of the time, like obviously. Yeah. 
I don't, I don't think I was ever scared as a kid, to be honest. Like I never learned at the age of nine, boy, sometimes people are not going to like me. I kind of thought everybody was going to like me all the time. <laughs> and I, it sounds naive to say, I wish I had had that lesson because, and the naivete comes from, obviously, you know, it was scary in a lot of circumstances. You were a kid, but, and, and I'm glad I didn't learn that lesson, I guess, but now I'm, I'm facing the reality of never having learned that lesson and, and always constantly trying to get everybody to like me. Yeah. I, I, again, you know, it's, it, it's interesting even, you know, being on social media or, or, you know, a, a book review or something like that, or, or survey results after you give a keynote and you, you see the, the negative review or the negative feedback from the, from the survey. And, and I smile because I've, I've, I've always known everyone is not going to be happy. Everyone's not going to like you, no matter what you do everyone is not going to like you. You're going to have an opinion that someone doesn't agree with. Your race, people aren't going to agree with. There are people to this day that do not believe that there should be mixed race in this, this country. I can't do anything to help those individuals. So I focus on being the best version of myself, being the best husband, father, CEO that, that I can possibly be. And outside of that, people have to deal with their own emotions. So when, when you were hanging out, you mentioned one story where your dad was in the front seat arguing with the prostitute. You were there with two of your half brothers. That, that is an interesting little side note. Like, did you and your half brothers like hang out? Like, do you have a, a LinkedIn oh, yeah. group of just all 23 of your half siblings? <laughs> no, matter, matter, matter of fact, James, when I left Dayton, Ohio, I was 15 years old. And I knew I had 18 half-brothers and sisters. When my dad passed away a couple of years ago and I went back to his funeral, I found out I had five more half-brothers and sisters. So I, I'm standing at this funeral next to uh, brothers and sisters. I didn't even know I had. Like I could, see, could have seen these people on the street and never known we were related. Uh, but yeah, my dad would pick us up quite often and, and we would you know, see our brothers and sisters. And, you know, the, the story, one of the stories I would share with you, James, that really changed the trajectory of my life that, that let me know I was able to take on a whole different level of responsibility is three of my half brothers and sisters and myself got left in a house for three weeks in February in Dayton, Ohio. I was with my uh, dad. I was supposed to be with my dad. My mother was in Texas. She didn't know where I was. My dad had taken me. Uh, my mother had no clue where I was in this country. And then my dad decided he was going to take off to England. And he left. And he left us with this prostitute. And she was a horrific heroin addict. And one Sunday afternoon, this prostitute says, hey, I'll be back. I'm going to go to the store and get a pack of cigarettes. And she left me with my three half-brothers and sisters who were four, three, and two. And Sunday turned into Tuesday, Tuesday turned into Wednesday, and this woman hadn't come back. And we're there three days. And I remember, my God, what are we going to do? No one knows we're here. We don't have a phone. How are we going to eat? So I had to tell the four-year-old to babysit my three-year-old and two-year-old uh, half-brother and sister while I went down to the store and stole food for us. And, and it was a hell of a risk, you know, going back into the risk factors, because if I would have got caught, they, were, they would have been left at that house by themselves. 
So I went down, stole food, came back. James, the minute I got back, it hit me. I'm like, oh, the two-year-old doesn't have any diapers. So I knew I couldn't steal diapers. So I knew I had to potty train my two-year-old little brother. And so I put him on the toilet, James, and he's crying. I'm crying. And I look at him and I said, hey, man, until something comes out, this is how it's going down. (laughs) And so that's how I learned how to potty train. Uh, You know, fast forward a little bit. uh, Those three days turned into three weeks. This woman left us for three weeks, James. And I always express this to people when I tell the story. There is no greater stress in my life that I've ever, ever experienced than every hour I lived in fear of wondering, would they disconnect the electricity and disconnect the water? Because I knew what it was like to live without electricity and water, but it was February in Ohio. It was cold. And all I did was worry every hour, would they disconnect the electricity? Would they disconnect the water? You know, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? No one knows we're here. And I just lived in fear for three weeks of just, oh, man, James, even right now brings tears to my eyes. It, 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 the, the fear was so intense because I, I even slept with the lights on. Because if I woke up in the middle of the night, I wanted to be assured, I wanted to to know, okay, cool, the lights are still on. And it it just was harsh. But that was the most stressful thing I've I've ever faced in in my life. And outside of that, man, I've always felt like, okay, I can accomplish anything. So like if you look now at at your all your half siblings, I'm I'm curious what made you different that you were able to kind of say, I'm, I'm going to climb, I'm going to grab this rung on the ladder and I'm going to push myself up and I'm going to climb one step today and one step tomorrow and one step the next day. What's out of your 23 half siblings, what's the worst outcome? I would say, let's just assume for a second, you were the best outcome in terms of let's call it well-being and success and so on. What's the worst outcome? Uh, there's two, two worst outcomes for, for me. Um, Mm, this is this is a harsh one. Uh, the the worst was the prostitute that sexually molested me, uh, smothered and suffocated my baby sister Erica when she was three four months old, and it was cause of death ended up what was called SIDS sudden infant, but that wasn't the case. Like it's widely known amongst my siblings, my dad, uh, the family that Mm -hmm. she suffocated the baby. And like, it's not, it's not, you know, everyone knows this It's not an assumption. It's not a a speculation. Everyone knows this. So that was the worst. Uh, The other one is one of my brothers got deep into the drug game. And when I say deep into the drug game, they found him on the side of the road in broad daylight, uh, his hands were cut off, and he was shot in the back of the head and set on fire in the middle of the day in in Detroit. And the only way they were able to identify him were by his dental records. And so that that's the the worst. And I, I've had you know brothers uh, in and out of prison and, and things of that nature. But yeah, it, it's. I ask myself sometimes, James, you know, how, why, why me? How did I get here? 
um, I've done my best to to answer that question and, and say to myself that uh, a big part of it is I remember looking in the mirror and and just feeling like no one believed in me, no one loved me. But I remember saying to myself in, in my teenage years, okay, if no one loves me, if no one believes in me, damn it, I'm going to love and believe in myself. So at the end of the day, there's always one person in this world that loves me and believes in me. It's me. And so if, if we're going to make this happen in life, it's going to be by way uh, of us. And I would always say us, like there was two of us when I looked in the mirror, but I would always say it's going to be by way of us. And what do you think, what do you think triggered that just little bit of, I don't know whether you call it positivity or go get them or something like what, there's something lifting and what, what lifted you, you think? You know, I, I do know this for a fact. I've thought back on that often, and it's something that I'm passionate about now, so I'll, I'll give you both parts. When I was 10 years old, I was living in Houston, Texas with my dad. My dad had moved the pimp game down to Houston, Texas, and my dad drove me through a neighborhood, uh, one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in, in the country. It's called River Oaks in, in Houston, Texas, and he drove me through this neighborhood 10, 15, $25 million homes. I had never seen anything like this, James. I mean, you, you had one family who lived in these homes that were bigger than the public housing projects that I lived in. And I remember driving through that neighborhood saying to myself, I want one of those. That's what I want. And I just remember saying that to myself and that became a, an execution goal for me. It's like, okay, I want one of those houses. What was so powerful about that was my dad never said anything. I don't even know that he knew that that's what came of it, but he showed me possibility. And, and I'm so passionate about that for the youth now that grow up in these same communities that I grew up in. How the hell are you supposed to know what you can aspire to be when you don't even know what exists? James, you know, it wasn't until I was 34 years old that I even knew what a barista was. It, you know, I didn't have a chicken breast until I was 15. I didn't know they, could, they would deliver pizza to your house till I was 16 years old. So I look and I look at these communities, these low economic, low economic communities that I come from, and it pains me because I know there are incredibly intelligent people in these communities, incredibly bright uh, people who want a, a way out of these communities, but you don't even know what's possible if, if no one shows you. And sometimes we spend so much time telling people that we just don't show people what's possible. Mm -hmm. So my, my last piece on this, if, if I could make one change to the educational system, your freshman year of high school, I would implement a class called show and tell. And not show and tell like my six-year-old where she takes her favorite toy and they tell you about it. No, show me a wealth advisor, tell me how I can become one. You know, you can become a certified financial planner and you don't have to have a degree, but how, how am I supposed to know that? Show me a pharmaceutical rep, tell me how I can become one. And, and it's sad because it, it's just show and tell from your, your freshman year, show me attention to detail. Who, where do you learn that lesson? No one it's, teaches you attention to detail. So it, it pains me because that moment really... Uh, held a huge impact for me because it showed me possibility. You know, it's such a great point about education too, like how, you know, when you're a kid, you think, 
oh, there's lawyer, doctor, astronaut, fireman, businessman, president. And those are like your six job choices. Right. And there's nothing else. Like I, nobody knows, like I didn't know, for instance, what an engineer was or how many. Right. And now kids, you know, if you're a kid now, I, I try to get my kids, hey, take a t-shirt, paint on it, sell it on <laughs> Shopify or Depop or Etsy or whatever. Like there's, there's po all sorts of possibilities now. Like there's, there's an infinite possibilities, but kids literally don't know. Like, like yeah. they, they have no clue. And I think that's a, the fault of the education system to some totally. extent. I mean, you have to, kids have to get up and go too and, and yes. have a uh, curiosity. So look, you know, so then you, 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 you rose up out of your situation you know, I read it in your book. You 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 worked in the um, very respectable and honorable industry of subprime mortgages for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Hel helping your fellow man buy a house, <laughs> and everybody deserves a home. Oh man, that was the worst freaking law ever passed. <laughs> that was it's, that, people don't really know. That's another. That's a topic of a whole other podcast. People really sure. don't know the oh, history. Man, that's a of whole subprime. different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> because you could blame, there's so many places to blame and it's everyone's yeah. fault. <laughs> so, and, and everybody wants to point a finger, but you could just point it to everyone. Yes. But, um, and then, but I, I am really intrigued. Like you, you know, you, 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 you rose up, you understood business, you went through business, you went through ups and downs fairly quickly. And then, you know, you, did you ever get, feel overwhelmed when later on you became CEO or president of a software company? Whoo, James, man, I remember. Um, so I got hired on at the software company. I was the lowest paid person. And I sat on a fold-out metal chair in a storage closet to make my sales calls. And there were 13 of us. And James, man, I, I should have been fired 71 different times from that company because I was not a culture fit. I just was the epitome of, of arrogance, cocky, uh, toxic to the culture, because all I knew was how to take care of myself. So sales, for me, was a great industry because it's all about producing, drive results, and you just have to focus on you. Well, that's not very good for a company as a whole. And so what was happening as we continue to have success and I brought in more business, I was toxic. I was just kind of like, hey, I brought in this business. I don't care what you do. Uh, do your software, whatever it is you do. I mean, James, I was so arrogant. I made the comment one time to the software engineers. I said, I don't care if you can launch the space shuttle from your phone. If I don't bring you a space shuttle, you don't have anything to do. And I, I should have been fired. And so it went from me being this, the, the sales guy, the top sales guy, to getting promoted to uh, EVP of sales and marketing. So then I went from toxic person to creating a toxic team. So the whole sales and marketing team, we were all toxic because it, all, it was all about us being number one. We didn't care about everybody else. We just knew we were gonna be number one. And then I got promoted to president. And damn, James, I remember walking into work early, my first day as president, and looking around and saying to myself, oh, wow. I'm responsible for all of this now. And it hit me. You are only as good as the great people you are surrounded by. And that became the way 
I, I did business. My whole leadership philosophy is rule number one, surround the company with people far smarter than yourself. Rule number two, surround yourself with people far smarter than yourself. And rule number three, repeat rules one and two. And so that became my leadership philosophy. And I realized, wow, you have to put people first. People is the number one aspect in success in business. At least for me, it is. My my three are people, process, and profits. Keep them in that order. So people always say people first, but what does that mean? Like, how did you, what did you do? What was the first people first thing you did? So... I'll, I'll take it here to where we are at Scribe right now, and you even look at our culture, Doc. So for me, when when I say people first, if you are in leadership, my these are my opinions. If you are in leadership, your role is nothing more than to serve and support the people you work with. No one works for me. People work with me. And in fact, if you, if you go to our About Us page, James, you know this, go to any company's About Us page, and the first thing you see are all of the C-suite executives, founders, chairmen, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you go to our About Us page, I'm at the bottom. And the reason why that is, is because I believe my role is to serve and support. I'm the foundational piece. And if you're looking for me, I want you to actually see all the people who are doing the work long before you make it down to me. Yes, do I make some decisions? Of course I do. But in my opinion, great leadership, when you make those decisions, it's by way of the great people you're surrounded by and you're asking questions and you're getting input. So when when you say, what do you do to put people first? It truly is, how do you serve the organization? Move the roadblocks, move the obstacles. Even others in our, our organization, no one has direct reports. We all, you, if you are in leadership, you're nothing more than a direct support. You support the people that are on that team. So there's no direct reports. There's no bosses. There's no managers. You are a direct support for the people you serve. So I think my listeners know what Scribe Media is, but maybe describe it. By so, the way, I just realized Scribe is in the word describe, but go ahead. <laughs> Well, so so one, to, to your point of, of leadership, one, one of the proud accomplishments that we have is uh, Entrepreneur Magazine named us the number one company culture in America. And that was a big win for us. We've been named the best place to work in Austin, number one, number two in the state of Texas. But we help authors write, market, and, and publish their books. And we've worked with over 1,700 authors now. A couple of the big names we've worked with last year, uh, we published for the ex-Navy SEAL David Goggins. He had the right. most sought-after book in America, second only to Michelle Obama. He, he was he was on my podcast right yeah. when he published the book. I, I yep. think, I forget if Tucker hooked us up or if his publicist or, so, I don't know how I found him, but he came on my podcast. Yeah, and to, and Tiffany Haddish also from a couple of years ago. Yep, from, we did from we did Scratch. Tiffany Haddish's book, and and uh, last week we just published Nassim Taleb's book. Uh, yeah, and, and then the one that I'm very proud of, we published for the Nobel Peace Prize Committee. And the reason why I'm proud of that is it, it speaks volumes uh, on our quality. And, and then on a from a selfish standpoint, the reason why I'm so proud of it too is never in a million years did I ever believe that the guy from Dayton, Ohio, whose dad was a pimp that had 23 kids with a GED would publish the book for the Nobel Peace Prize Committee. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's weird how dots get connected. 
on oh, the God, planet. God bless America. So, so, so yeah. So basically, authors come to you, and it's anything from "Hey, I have an idea" to "Hey, I'm a professional writer. I published all these books, but now I just yep. want to. I, I don't really need the the infrastructure of a mainstream publishing company like Simon and Schuster or whatever, and and everybody in between. So, like, I could come to you. I'm let's say I'm a big famous person. I come to you and I say, look, I just want to tell you my stories. And that's one service you do. You, you take those, your team takes those stories, puts it into a book, uh, publishes it onto Amazon. You do audiobook. You take care of the audiobook, paperback, eBooks, marketing, whatever. And then it's the whole range of services. Everything. James, you know this from, from traditional publishing. You know, traditional wants nothing to do with, with authors anymore unless you've got 2 million Instagram followers. And what, what's interesting is, is David Goggins actually has 2 million Instagram followers. And uh, traditional offered him up, a, gave him an advance and everything and, and offered it to him. And he said no. And he went with us and he's made more money than he ever thought he could, could make with, with that book. But yeah, we, we help you from start to finish. There's authors that have the book in their head, but there's no way they could actually write the book. I was one of those people. Man, I can't tell you an adverb from an adjective, and I damn can't, damn sure can't spell. Uh, but I knew I had a book, and I and I knew I wanted that book for, for my, my family, for my, my children. So we help people from book idea all the way through publishing, getting it up on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, Google Play, so on and so forth. And then we have individuals who write the manuscript themselves. And they said, okay, here, here's my baby. Can you do the proofreading, some editing, help me with the cover design, the interior layout, so on and so forth. And we get it published. Uh, again, same, same uh, piece that, that we do with the, the folks who just have the book idea themselves. So yeah, everything in between, we help authors uh, write, publish, and market their books. It's so interesting because just in terms of how the publishing industry has evolved, you, I, I, you're right. Like, and, and I don't want to, I have spent many times dissing the mainstream publishing agent, uh, industry. And you're, you're, you're right that, you know, your ability to market your book is, is that's the biggest factor in whether they choose to make your book or not, regardless of the topic or who, you know, what's it about or whatever you know, with some exceptions, like if you're related to Donald Trump and you want to say something bad, right, about him, they'll probably right. publish your book. And <laughs> there's a bunch of circumstances like that. But, um, uh, but then again, look at the, you know, David Goggins, Tiffany Haddish, the Nobel Peace yeah. Prize, they certainly could have gone through the traditional process and, and they didn't, uh, you know, there's more flexibility on marketing, on pricing, on when it's due. And I'd like to think some of the idea, uh, well, Tucker's been doing this for a long time, but I remember back in 2012 uh, and 2013, Tucker and I were discussing, I wanted to self-publish a book, but I didn't want to, I'd already published with all the mainstream publishers. I didn't want to, I didn't want to skip any, I, I, I didn't want to, what was it? I didn't want to uh, take a shortcut that would ruin the book. Yeah. So I didn't, I wanted to make sure I had a professionally done cover, professionally done layout, professionally done inner layout, professionally done proofreading, which is different from professionally done editing. And you know, I don't know, it really kind of, I wanted to professionally self-publish. And, you know, I think I'd like to think that Tucker having experiences like working with me on this, you know, led him more and more to, to the ideas that became scribe. I'm not taking credit. I think I, I owe him more than he owes me. 
But um, <laughs> you you nailed it though, James. You 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 keep using the word professional, and and it's interesting because we actually carved out our own lane, if you will. There's traditional publishing, and we all know that route. And then there's self publishing. And when you say self publishing to to most people, they still think you're running down to FedEx Kinkos and stapling some papers together. Right. So we created our our lane of professional publishing. And it's a, it's a hybrid of both of them. But you can line up our books with any HarperCollins, uh, Penguin, Random, it doesn't matter. And, and you would not know the difference in quality. I mean, our creative director who, who actually does our covers, she's done 17 New York Times bestselling covers. So Wait, who uh, is it? Do I, do I know her? You know Aaron, Aaron Tyler. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, Aaron Tyler. You know Aaron? Did the, she did the cover of, of all my self-published there books. There you go, see? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, you're right. Like if I if I looked at Tiffany Hannish's book in the bookstore, David Goggins' book, you would never be able to determine that that was not done by Random House or or Simon and Schuster or whatever. And yeah. I think that's I think that's really important. If you hire professionals for every part of the job, you're going to have maybe even better than a mainstream published book, yes. or you know, hopefully better because they're going to be the masters of their. They're not going to be they're going to be entrepreneurial editors and cover designers and layout designers and i'm not trashing the people who work for the publishing companies they're very qualified as well it's just you know it's just a different strategy it's it's a different strategy different model and in in our opinion a model that allows the author to keep control of their book you know that's the the biggest thing that we hear from people who have published traditional is and, and again you you know this traditional they own your book and, and whereas you, you publish with us, you own 100% of the IP. The book's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. Yeah, and, and there's also this point that I think is interesting, which is people are experts in their areas, but it doesn't mean they're expert writers. Like, it's very right. hard to be both an, an excellent astronaut and a really great writer. Like, those are two different skills. But maybe I want to hear the story of the son of a pimp or an astronaut <laughs> or whatever. I want to hear those stories and read those stories. And, uh, you know, I want them still told in, you know, someone who's a, by, by a master professional, you know, someone who's written best-selling books before, like a Tucker telling these stories or, or whoever you have on your team telling these stories because they've written many books. So they have a different expertise than, you know, David Goggins has his expertise. He might not he might not go from running an ultra marathon to writing, you know, the greatest literary novel. So let's let's give him that skill set so he so we can hear his story and, and benefit from it. And I think that's that's a real valuable thing that you guys do. Totally, you 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 nailed it. I mean, there there's not too many emergency room trauma surgeons who are also excellent writers or even excellent at. Uh, taking care of their own finances, they they usually have someone that that does that. You know, if you if you can run a four three forty and you're in the NFL, you usually have financial advisors, attorneys, things of that nature. Uh, so so like you said, the the expertise you you go to people for the expertise. I mean, and and it's um, you also pay for time. You know, uh, my but I, I give you a, a very small example of this. My my neighbor, he's always outside doing his lawn, always doing his lawn. And and he asked me one day, he goes, JT, you don't take pride in, in doing your own lawn. Uh, I said, no, I take pride when I turn the corner into this gated community that I can pay someone to do the lawn. <laughs> I yeah. said, you know, I, I agree come with from you. nothing. I'm, I take pride in the fact that I can pay someone to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole point. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, how do you market a book? A lot of people ask me, oh, if I don't, they, they don't get it. They don't understand how it works. They say, oh, if I don't go with a traditional publisher, how do I market? How do you guys help people market a book? Well, you, you know, again, you, you know this. It, it, the, if you're not a big name individual, uh, traditional is not really going to help you market your book. You're, you're kind of left out there to, to do it yourself. Just because you, you landed a traditional deal doesn't mean they're going to market it. So for us, uh, we find out what are your goals? Who, who's your target audience? What are you trying to accomplish? Uh, are you trying to bring in more business? Is this book done for legion? Is it done it for uh, credibility? Uh, what, what, why did you write this book? Is it, is it a legacy piece? So we sit down with you and let's let's define success. Let's figure out which podcast we need to to have you on, which contributed articles and publications we need to have you you into. Let's manage your social media for you. So we do that whole marketing plan for you. But the the whole key is. What are we trying to accomplish? Because you can go out and garner, you know, drive up a bunch of attention, but if it doesn't accomplish your goals, what's the point? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I remember again working with Tucker back in the day. We would talk about this, and he 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 would outline like, are you going for money? Yeah, number of books sold or New York Times bestseller list because. Maybe you could have two out of three, but you're not going to have three out of three. Right. And so it, was, it is really important to sit down and think about these goals and who's your audience. Like you said, with your book, you wanted to make sure your family knew your story. Like even that's an important, you know, goal. And uh, it, it is interesting because when he, when Tucker did scribe or he started and then he brought you on and I'm, I'm sure I know that was hard for him to kind of a uh, seed <laughs> control to somebody and and he's but he's done a good job right of stepping back like he doesn't tell you what to do or anything no, you tell no. him what to do yeah, i don't even it, know if you tell him what to do but you know my favorite part james you know still to this day people will you know who who know the the legendary tucker max uh, if I'm at a conference or something like, oh my God, you, you work with Tucker, you know, wh what's it like to work with Tucker? And what they want to hear is, yeah, I come into the office and Tucker's passed out on the conference table with alcohol and beer cans and, and butt naked women everywhere. That's what they want to hear. But then when I tell them the reality, I'm like, yeah, Tucker lives in the gated community. He's married. He has three kids, a daughter, two dogs, and he has a wine cellar. And he's usually in bed by about 930. And it just shatters their whole <laughs> yeah on Tucker. <laughs> I remember one time in 2012, I got into some, or 2011, sorry, 2011, I got into some email fight with uh, someone who hated one of my books. And I got this email the next morning from this guy, Tucker Max. And I knew who he was. And I'm like, is this the real Tucker Max? The whole email was about Buddhism and how maybe you know I should just relax a little bit when someone's having like a Twitter fight with me, and it was definitely not what I was expecting. But in my first email <laughs> from him, but um, uh, you know I, I I'm gonna pitch you some ideas for the company. Here's here's my ideas that I think you guys should All also right, go do. Go for it. So like if someone has a best selling book and let's say they're in a space that lends itself towards this idea I'm about to tell you. You should also provide services that, hey, we'll also help you set up a, a newsletter so you can keep in contact with your audience. So, you know, it could be a subscription newsletter. It could be a free newsletter, but we'll help you. Uh, so this way at the back page of your book, hey, if you want to hear more from me, sign up for my weekly, monthly, whatever newsletter, and um, it will link to the 
site that you set them up with so that they can start a newsletter so they have an ongoing communication with, with their audience that doesn't just end with the book. Boom. That's idea number one. I like it. I like, I'm, I'm taking notes. I'm literally sitting here taking notes. <laughs> yeah. And then I had another one while I was thinking of that one, but now I've, I forgot it. <laughs> so I'll have to, I'll have to think of, I'll have to think of the next one again, but, um, uh, I'll give you one James. that was a huge game changer for us. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to listen to David Goggins audio book, but it was the first audio book that was ever done where the narrator reads the chapter but at the end of each chapter, there's a Q&A, uh, an actual Q&A uh, between Dave, David and the narrator. And that changed the game. Everybody wants their audiobook done like that now. That's great. You know, in my in the very first audiobook I did, which again, I did it on Tucker's advice because I had never listened to an audiobook in my life. And Tucker's like, no, you got to do an audiobook. And he says, and you got to use a real studio. And he, he said, put your wife on the phone. He put my wife on the phone. He's like, tell James he can't just do it in his basement. He's got to like go to a studio. And so I did it, but I didn't want to read the book. So I just yeah. kind of riffed on the concepts and told new stories and stuff. So it was a different product. So it wasn't quite like what David Goggins did. That sounds really interesting what he did. I might try that. Um, but I like this idea of making the audio book a different product than the book. Um, so that's that's interesting. I can't what, what's awesome about it too is you can actually uh, split out the rights on both of them. So if you yeah. you know for whatever reason you want to sell the foreign rights of your book to to China, but you want to keep the podcast, I mean the audiobook rights, great, you can do that. Yeah, no, that's that's real smart. So uh, and Tim Ferriss went around buying up a yes. lot of audiobook rights for a while. Yes. I don't know if he's still doing it, but he's he, he did a good job of that. Yeah. Speaking of Tim Ferriss, James, when, when are we going to get you to move to Austin? Because you know now we let's see, we've got Tucker here, we've got Ryan Holiday, we got Tim Ferriss, we got Hal Elrod, um, Aubrey Marcus, Aubrey Marcus, Joe Noah Rogan, Kagan. Joe, Joe Rogan now moving, moving here. So you know when, when's James coming? Well, I was thinking about it because my my wife Robin, she lived in Austin for about ten years. And we were thinking about it because New York City is just like escape from New York now. It's not, <laughs> it's not the same New York City more. And I and Tucker knows I love New York City. I've lived there forever. And I have a real, I even like own a comedy club there. Like I have a real life there. And but we couldn't take it anymore. There was it was yeah. getting depressing. And um, so I'm in I'm in Key Biscayne, Florida right now. And oh wow. Yeah. So so I'm a few stay. I feel like I'm right next door because it's either New York and the rest of the world. So when I'm here, I feel like, oh, you're in Colorado. Yeah, I'm just right down the street from here. Right, right. But, uh, so I feel like Austin's close, um, but I haven't. Uh, we, we ended up doing this because it's a little easier for our kids to get back and forth. Yeah. But um, yeah, and then I was I was thinking of I, I want to remember this other scribe idea. But you know, there was another question I had for you too, which is yeah. you're, you're you're busy with scribe. You're you're busy with your obviously your your family and everything. How many how many friends do you think someone should have? Oh man, James, I greatly appreciate that question. Me personally, and, and this has obviously a lot to do with my my background. I keep a small circle. I, I I know a lot of people, but I only classify. I I've got under ten friends, and for me, a friend is someone that. If my house is facing foreclosure, they'll make the house payment. That mm. that's that's a friend to to me. You know, my 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 best friend from for life is I he was the first person I met when I moved to San Antonio, Texas. I was 15 years old. 
Uh, he's been the best man in my wedding. I was the best man in his wedding. When I lost all my money and went broke, he did pay pay my rent. When he was broke, I, I helped take care of him. He he is my best friend. We always say through through thick and thin. Uh, so I know a lot of people, but I have under ten actual friends. Yeah, that's that's like me as well. And I always I always wonder the question. So um, I always I always occasionally I ask people that. And I just remembered my other idea for Scribe. Here we go. Okay. You know those sites like BookBub and yeah, yeah. you know they they send out emails of promotions and they sell quite. If you're on a BookBub promotion, you'll hit like there's a good chance you'll hit a bestseller list the next yep. week. You should buy one of those or two of those or three of those sites and maybe not BookBub, but maybe buy three or four smaller ones that you could get for cheap and or you know email lists of of book lovers and uh, that becomes a service you offer. And, 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 and you, you, because of who you are, you'll be able to, let's say you buy for four or five times earnings. You'll be able to quickly increase your earnings because you'll yes. run all your authors through it. James, you, you are, uh, you're pulling the curtain back a little far, sir. Uh, uh -oh. you know, it's, uh, so, so, and, and, you know, I, I'll say this as well, James, you'll appreciate this. So we are a little over five years old as a, as a company, uh, and we have no debt no loans, no private equity, and no VC money. And, and I say to people, I said, and here's the most insane part, we're profitable. I said, so when you want to talk about unicorns, a five-year-old company that can say that, that's a real unicorn, not WeWork. And so to, right. to your point, I absolutely love business. And so yes, taking on those other companies, uh, growing with, with, with cash, you know, we, we make our income statement uh, available to the entire company every month. And, and it shows how much money came in, how much is in the bank, and, and what the bottom line is. I don't deal in just top line and subscribers. Like, what the hell is that? The, it, it really comes down to to the bottom line. So, uh, again, you're, you're pulling the curtain back because that's that's definitely uh, some things we have in the works. What do you, what do you want to do at the end of this of this road, or is it just going to keep on going? Like, do you, do you see this being a sale eventually, or you know, probably you know, like an Amazon would buy it, or or who knows, even like a Google or if Scribd goes public or whatever. You know, James, it's 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 interesting. So there's there's three of us. Uh, Tucker and Zach are the original co-founders, and then they they brought me on. And I, you know, we, I share this with you. I am now the largest equity holder of the company. Wow. And so, you know, with, with Tucker, myself, Zach, all of us are financially fine. So there's no rush to, you know, an IPO or to sell. You know, if someone approached us with some insane offer, we definitely would have to entertain it. But right now, we, we love what we do. And, and really what kept me with Tucker and Zach is they, they sat me down and they said, look, man, whatever you want to build, whatever. So it doesn't even have to be on books. Whatever you want to build, you can build it here. And, and it hit me. I thought to myself, wow, I'm surrounded by great people, talented people. Why would I go anywhere else if I've got that offer to, to start whatever I want here? So for us right now, it's continuing to expand upon the things that we're doing. We've got several different arms that we're getting ready to launch. So it's, you know, continue to grow. And more importantly, James, this is, this is big for me. Doing it different than corporate America Keep keeping people first, offering uh, uh, valuable work. Uh, you know, I'm not a, a micromanager. 
I don't care if you have a four-hour doctor's appointment. Are you driving results? Are you getting? Are you performing in your role? Great. Do do your thing. Um, if you go to your child's performance during the day for five hours, great. Do your thing. Are you driving results? Are you performing in your role? So I want to continue to to do uh, do it different. Grow grow a great company. One one of my big um, I guess if you want to say dead mentors that that I look up to was George Westinghouse and and how he uh, conducted himself in in business. He's he's arguably the founder of the modern uh, of the weekend. Uh, he's the only I didn't know that. Yeah, he's the only baron of his time where the the people who worked with him never went on strike. Rockefeller's people went on strike. Carnegie's went on strike. He gave his his team uh, Sundays off, and then he started giving them half day on Saturday, and that turned into a whole weekend. And when he died, he uh, they built a, a monument uh, around him, and he offered things that, you know, everyone's impressed by Google and all the things that they offer now. George Westinghouse did this back in the, the late 1800s. He had a doctor on site. He had a nurse on site, a dentist. He would do a lease-buy program for people to be able to purchase their homes. So, you know, I, I look at that, and I want to take us back to a time period, James, and I mean this with all sincerity. There was a time period in our country where people retired from the place that they started. And now you know, most most of these kids have seven different jobs by the time they're 30 years old. Yeah. And, and even if someone doesn't want to retire with us, I want them to be able to wake up each morning and know that they have that option. And so I, I would like to bring that back to, to uh, the way business is done. Well, JT McCormick, thanks. I know we had planned three years ago to have you on the podcast. I really apologize. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, what are did I have him on the podcast? Sometimes I don't remember. Like one time, I I asked Jay, who's who's quietly listening here, the audio engineer. Oh, we should have so and so on. Um, it looks like he had a book come out six months ago, and Jay said, "Yeah, you had him on six months ago." So <laughs> sometimes my memory is not so good, and uh, so I was trying to think: is this like one of those situations that I already have JT on? And uh, I, I I didn't. I'm so glad you came on. I I, I apologize for three years ago canceling. And uh, look, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your story. I, I read the book when it came out. I reread it uh, preparing for this podcast. You you know I'm a fan, and and of course I'm a fan of Tucker and Scry Media, the company. You have such a compelling story. Everyone should go out and and read the book. It's uh, by J T McCormick. I got there. First off, I like the title. I don't even like subtitles so much, but I got there. <laughs> And subtitles, How a Mixed Race Kid Overcame Racism, Poverty, and Abuse to Arrive at the American Dream. Such a great book, J.T. McCormick. And once again, I I learned so much from you reading that and and talking to you here. And also, you know, we have so many friends in common. I hear lots of stories, really insane stories about you. I won't repeat them here. And... uh, (laughs) Uh, thanks once again for coming on the podcast. Hey, James, man, honestly, this was was truly humbling. I, I am flattered. Great to to be a part of this. And uh, I, I say this with all sincerity. Many people say it and they, they half-ass mean it. But man, if, if I can ever assist you with anything, just say the word. Well, same here. I, I really mean it. Like, uh, we're, we're all in the, in the same crew. So I, I, it's always a good thing. Excellent. Yeah, thanks once again. Take care, sir.
At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.